0: This is the Jocko podcast civil war excursion number three with J.D. Baker and me Jocko Willink good evening J.D. Good evening Jocko. On November 8th 1861 a week after replacing Scott as general in chief McClellan spelled out his war aims to his confidant Barlow. He wrote, I am fighting to preserve the integrity of the union and the power of the government on no other issue. To gain that end, we cannot afford to mix up the Negro question. It must be incidental and subsidiary. During his Western Virginia campaign, he had assured slaveholders that their peculiar institution would be religiously respected that he would crush with an iron hand any attempted slave uprising. Later, he would repeat that pledge to the Virginia landowner, Hill Carter. Quote, I have not come here to wage war on the defenseless, upon non-combatants, upon private property, nor upon the domestic institutions of the land. End quote. So that right there. Well, some 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 quotes from McClellan from a book called landscape turn red by Stephen W. Sears and you know, we've been talking JD about Kind of a, a, an attitude a political attitude That was not unfamiliar in the north and that was the idea of just kind of a status quo. Hey We'll just keep just kind of keep things the way we are keep things the way they are and and, and and this is McClellan, right? And, and that probably fuels, when we talk about McClellan, the fact that he's not exactly a go-getter. He's not exactly a proactive leader. He's not st- go, going out there to make things happen. He's not default aggressive. He's more a slow roller. He's gonna let things kind of play out a little bit and hope that there's not much activity and you know, hoping kind of let, like let the status quo continue. Um But when you have that kind of attitude, when you have a a non, when you have a passive attitude, especially on the battlefield, you can lose battles (laughs) because of it. And right now, Union troops, his Union troops are are demoralized in the East. Um, The first battle of Manassas, right? The Union troops got kind of crushed. The Peninsula campaign, Union troops didn't, didn't do what they needed to do manassas too once again it's it's hurt locker for the union troops and you know meanwhile shiloh had taken place which was a victory for the union but center of gravity is the east i mean from a political standpoint is that is that a safe assessment
1: yeah you know everybody uh focuses on on that that eastern theater uh even though you know when we talked about like yesterday with the anaconda plan and the head of the snake is coming from the west that would you know just automatically we would assume that that's going to be kind of the focus of main effort to to get everything in but uh just because of the the location you know we talked about you know you got richmond and you got D.C. that is a hop, skip and a jump, you know, right up the telegraph road from each other and everybody's eyes, newspapers, all that kind of stuff is is focused in uh, on that on that eastern uh, theater of campaign. And, you know, when you talk about, uh, you know, McClellan, uh, you know, of, of what he did to, to Pope, you know what I mean, when they put Pope in for the second battle of, of Manassas, uh, you know what I mean? And. and uh, his relationship uh so, so,
0: so, so let's talk through that real quick because I don't know how much we covered it before you had Pope that kind of had been given command and given the task they start coming they start kind of losing the battle and McClellan is in a position where he could provide troops to support Pope and maybe turn the tide of that was Manassas too and McClellan doesn't do anything.
1: Yeah. And, you know, so as, as Pope's going to come over, Pope's coming over from the West. Uh, so it's even, uh, you know, of of today, if, if I was going to use it, uh, whether it's in the military, you know, with Navy and Marines, you're either East Coast or West Coast. Uh, and regardless of anybody likes to kind of look, there's a uh, there's a difference uh, being East Coast and West Coast. A lot of times, you know, in the military, they're like, hey, are you an East Coast guy or are you a West Coast guy? well, there's a different, I'm just a guy, you know what I mean? It's the same organization, but it's just, it's different. Uh, you know what I mean? Of, of folks that, of where they're stationed. So it, it's no different there. You got the guys that are out there on the Western theater side. And then you've got a lot of these folks that, uh, you know, if you look at the general officers, uh in just of, of a whole and you look at the western side versus the the eastern theater side of of mcclellan and burnside and franklin and a lot he's got a lot of them are political kind of guys like you know like mcclellan is definitely are playing this,
0: these are the union east
1: yeah union, union east guys yeah. you know with the army of the potomac yeah you know, these guys are playing politics they're supposed to be like a general, you know what I mean? Like they're supposed to be like, you know, crushing this insurgency. And, and a lot of them are trying to play politics at, at the same time, which McClellan is, is no different. And of course, you know, he gets put in command. McClellan runs for president, right? Does, oh, in
0: 64.
1: Yep. 64. He's going to run as a Democrat.
0: Yeah. So even that even when you hear him talking about his strategy and how he's like, hey, I'm kind of a status quo guy. You could see that. That's almost like a predictive unification idea that he has. Hey, look, if I can win the presidency, we can kind of roll this thing back and we can just let slavery keep going in the South. And it's almost like he's on a, he's on campaign right now. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, you got to look at it just like they got the preliminaries. So, you know, each one
1: of these parties got to kind of pick their guy of, of who they're going to run. And the Democrats, not the Southern Democrats, the Northern Democrats, uh, they're going with McClellan and they're going to pick McClellan. And, you know, that, that's so you've got a commander in chief. You've got this civil war going on. Uh, he's basically giving you everything you're asking for. Uh, You know what I mean? So the Army of the Potomac is very well equipped. They're manned. You know what I mean? Like, and he's going to give a flotillas. They're going to go down. They're going to buy off on your peninsula campaign. You're going to go down there and monkey around on the peninsula. Uh, You know, your best chances uh, are going against uh, Johnson. uh, You know what I mean? Who's the original uh, commander for the Confederacy at the time. But then when he goes down, Robert E. Lee enters the field and you get the seven pines, what we kind of talked about. Well, that was a little bit of a game changer, bringing Bobby into the mix. Uh, so now he's into the mix. Lincoln visits you down there. He's not happy uh, with how your conduct of, of war, because uh, you're not moving fast enough. I mean, you know, everybody's on a timetable. You know, I could imagine the president of the United States, you know, we talked about it at the beginning of the war, hey, it's going to be 90 days and it's out you know, well, and now we're over 90 days. I mean, we're we're entering into, you know, uh, of, of what you read with from Stephen Sears. I mean, we're in 62 now. That's not 90 days anymore. This is getting a little bit drawn out. He's going to pull you back out. He's not happy with you. Uh, you know, he brings Pope in from the West. And then, you know, you've got resources that are on the East Coast and you're not, you know what I mean, kind of acting like, oh, I didn't get the memo. Like, you know, oh, I was supposed to send folks over there to support, you know what I mean? So you're like, really, dude? Like, come on, man. Uh, and then you get put back in command. And it, it's basically Lincoln really doesn't have anybody else. Like, who who else do I have? I mean, you spoke of Shiloh. And the first day, like we talked about, you know, with Grant, I mean, he runs a yard sale down there. The, the Confederates definitely, uh, you know what I mean, had the opportunity to crush that entire army. I mean, when even when you read out of, uh Uh, company H uh, of the privates are like, why are we stopping, man? Like, you know what I mean? Let's roll these
0: dudes. When the privates are thinking that, you know, you screwed up, man. Uh, uh,
1: Yeah. Uh, And and then you got Buell comes in with the Army of Ohio. And then the next day, and, and look at the difference of commanders. So Beauregard takes command, launches a letter prematurely, claiming victory, and then here comes Buell and Grant, and you got two of them, and both of them are like, the only thing we know what we're going to do tomorrow morning is attack, and they're going to push them all the way back, and then they're going to lose Currenth, uh, Mississippi, uh, you know, along the way, so there is that that Western uh, is showing good progress for this overarching Anaconda plan, uh, but we're here on the East Coast, And you're having a little bit of problems with your most well-equipped Army of the Potomac. And like we had stated before, I mean, for some odd reason, you know, he's uh, a lot of the troops like Little Mac. They like the little Napoleon. Uh, You know what I mean? They're all happy. So when he gets put back in charge of the Army of the Potomac, boom, you know, everybody's excited again. Uh, and maybe it's just because they're getting three hots and a cot. He's taking really good care of them. I, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, but now the relationship between an army commander and the and the president of the United States of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, it's it's not a good relationship to have. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine. So uh,
0: so when when McClellan gets put in command he's actually taking over is it correct to say he's taking over well his army but then absorbing the uh pope's army as well yeah is that what he gets control of
1: yep he's going to absorb uh pretty much you know he's always asking for more numbers even you know they've got the defenses of of dc so they've got troops that are back there in, in dc and he's even like trying to pull folks from anywhere that he can that you know because he's He's exaggerating the size of the army of Northern Virginia. Like, you know what I mean? Like, this is becoming like, kind of like his his go-to of like, hey, why aren't you moving? Well, hey, I just got a report that came in that you know there's 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 ninety thousand of them out there. Well, yeah, when you look at the roles of the Confederacy, there's you know if we're looking at it now, I mean, I think they're just a little over (laughs) forty thousand, and he's setting it right around like eighty-five thousand. Uh, And then if you look at the equipment, like if you were going to do like a like a junk on the bunk between like a a, a private soldier with the Army of Northern Virginia and, and then like a private from the Army of the Potomac. Like I, you know, the 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 guy from the Confederacy is going to show up, and he's got like a gun, <laughs> and that's, he doesn't even have shoes on. You know what I mean? Like the guy's got nothing. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, they're just kind of showing up with what they got. You look at the Army of the Potomac; they've got everything. You know what I mean? They're, they get they get the kitchen sink uh, with what these guys. I mean, it's the Industrial North, so you know what I mean. You could only imagine uh, of the two, and that that's kind of you know Lincoln's kind of looking at this of like. Man, the Confederacy seems to be doing pretty well. And, like, it's not they've got the industrial North backing them with, you know, contractors and just, you know, everything that they want, they get. They're doing more with less. And you can kind of see that Lincoln's like, it's the leadership.
0: Now, when it comes to leadership, you got McClellan and, yeah. You know, first of all, I'll say this. It seems like, yeah, you know, I'm always talking about the fact that you need to think strategic at all times. You, know, you need to think long term. It seems like McClellan is thinking so long term that he's thinking about his presidential run. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, hey, you need to worry about winning this right. What's going on right now, which. So that's a problem. The other thing is when you've got a bad leader. It's very hard to overcome unless the bad leader kind of knows maybe he's not the best leader and he's got some subordinate leadership that's good. I've saw that many times in the SEAL teams. You get a maybe a platoon commander is not the best platoon commander, but he's got a great platoon chief. It, it, and he and as long as he says, you know what, I'm I'm not the best at this job, but my platoon chief's really good. Hey, chief, how do you want to do this? Hey, chief, why don't you run this? Hey, chief, I'm all ears. Then then it, that platoon's going to do great. It's going to do great. But if you have the arrogant leader that doesn't know what he's doing and he's got an experienced platoon chief, but the arrogant platoon leader isn't listening to his subordinate leadership, it's going to be a disaster. So for McClellan, it's not like McClellan doesn't have some competent and capable leaders in subordinate positions, right? I mean, he's got some kind of studs underneath him.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, and and when you look at, I mean, you know, he's got you know McClellan. He's a West Point grad. Uh, He was, you know, he's a Philly guy. Uh, So he was born in Philly. Uh, You know, goes to West Point. I mean, he he, uh, goes fights in the Mexican American War. Uh, He's down there with the guys. Uh, You know, he comes back out, gets into railroad. I mean, the guy's an intelligent person. You know, I mean, he's he's white collar America. I mean, the guy, he's 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 doing well for himself. Um, And but. Yeah, when you look at the at the difference of a of a leader like he doesn't like have like a council of war. You know what I mean? Like probably the only other subordinate that he even like has any kind of conversations with is like Franklin. You know what I mean? Some of the other ones. But if you look at the roster of who he's got on the team now, of course, like we know more now uh, about like who's on his roster than the rest of. But they were all West Point guys. I mean, you know, we had talked earlier, you know, I mean, he's got Hooker uh, that's in there. You know, he's got Meade that's in there. He's got Reynolds in there. I mean, he's got Hancock. I mean. These are some capable guys, uh, and he's not even, like, bringing them in to even ask them what they think.
0: Yeah, it, the old council of war. All that means is listen to the people that are on your team. Like, like listen to what they have to say because they might have some ideas. They might see some things that you don't see. doesn't seem like too much to ask there, McClellan.
1: Uh, yeah, and, you know, we, we kind of talked about a little bit about, you know, in the last one we talked about Jackson, you know what I mean, and Stonewall and how he – you know, if he – He didn't like. He did a lot of the same thing. Like he kept. He was very close hold with a lot of his plans because you know he had trust issues. Uh, But the difference is, is like if if you were going to put like McClellan. McClellan is like one of these guys that, you know, you got to run around with a flamethrower, man, setting his ass on fire to get him to do stuff. You know, when you look at a guy like Stonewall Jackson, you got to run around with a bucket of water, man, because that dude's on fire. Uh, You know what I mean? He's just and he's going to win. You know what I mean? So when you're looking at the difference uh, of the two folks, you know, Lincoln is trying to take a flamethrower, you know what I mean, And, and put some fire under McClellan's ass. And he's gonna he's gonna he's slow rolling because yeah, he's yeah, he's got a long-term plan. I want to get on the Democratic ticket, you know what I mean? I wanna run for president of the United States, and you know, and we'll just play status quo. We'll just keep the union, we'll all be here, and you guys just keep doing what you're doing. Uh, and you know, so that uh, that excerpt that you read out of the book, uh, Landscape Turn Red about McClellan, I mean that that's gives you a really good insight of what this guy's mindset's like. So you know when you talk about like aligning with the boss to make sure you know you got the boss you got all these folks that are up there that you know what I mean like they're they're going to deal with this issue of, of slavery in the South and then you've got a, an army commander that's he's not on board with the plan
0: yeah that's that's really goes back to like an extreme ownership if you don't believe in what you're doing then you're not going to make the effort. You're not going to be able to overcome the obstacles that you face. It's just not going to happen. And, and here you got this guy that like <laughs> literally doesn't care. You know, he's just, hey, we just want to keep the union together. You guys want to keep having slaves? Cool. I'm, I'm fine with that. We just want to keep the union together, and that way I can be president. <laughs> <This guy laughs> so unaligned. <laughs> so September 1862, uh, up until this point, the battles are taking place in Virginia. Lee wants to get the fight out of Virginia. Uh, Proximity-wise, Maryland looking pretty good. <laughs> let's, get, let's get this thing up into Maryland. Um, and, and Lee comes up with a plan, a plan on how they're gonna, they're gonna make this move to take the fight out of Virginia, up into Maryland. And he, and he writes out pretty detailed order. Uh, kind of a famous order. It's become a very famous order. It's Order 191 from General Lee. And I'm actually gonna read through this thing. Cause I think it's a good example of how the how these individuals, how these leaders are communicating to their subordinate leadership, the kind of thought process they're going through. So this is what General Lee says in Order 191. One, the citizens of Frederickstown's Frederickstown Being unwilling while overrun by members of this army to open their stores in order to give them confidence and to secure to officers and men purchasing supplies for benefit of command. All officers and men of this army are strictly prohibited from visiting Frederickstown except on business in which case they will bear evidence of this in writing from division commanders. The provost marshal in Fredericktown, Fredericktown, will see that his guard rigidly enforces this order. So, generally, he's thinking hearts and minds, right? This is a good oh, yeah. call. Hey, don't freaking go in there like like Marines on Liberty <laughs> in, in in Subic Bay in nineteen eighty four, right? Yeah, that's not what we're looking to do. No, he's, hearts and minds. Yes, hearts and minds. Don't go in there. So that's a good that's a good process or a good thought process. Two. Major Taylor will proceed to Leesburg, Virginia and arrange for transportation of the sick and those unable to walk to Winchester, securing the transportation of the country for this purpose. The route between this and Culpeper Courthouse east of the mountains being unsafe will no longer be traveled. Those on the way to this army already across the river will move up promptly and others will proceed to Winchester collectively and under command of officers, at which point, being the general depot of this army, its movements will be known and instructions given by commanding officer regulating further movements. So those are some pretty specific orders. He's pretty clear about what he wants done as far as what, what Major Taylor's got going on.
1: Yeah. And the, and the logistical aspect, you know, when you look at it of the locations of what, like Winchester, Virginia and that kind of area, that's over towards the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, so when he's looking at that, a lot of folks like the the North really doesn't figure out until later on in the war that when you look at the Shenandoah, that is what we consider the breadbasket of the Confederacy. Meaning that that's where logistical trains are going to come out, and even still to this day, you know, when you head out of Winchester and you go down through the Shenandoah towards like uh, you know um, Charlottesville, Virginia, kind of area, that that area is just Virginia farmland, so it becomes the breadbasket of the Confederacy. And and he's basically telling them what route. So, you know, there's nothing that says in there about like the Telegraph Road. So if you're looking at it today to kind of visualize where you're at is like Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And you can there's a way, you know, for the Potomac River. There's certain ways. Potomac is a it's a it's a that's a huge obstacle. Uh, you know what I mean? To be able to cross over. And so, yeah, he's he's being uh, very specific, uh, you know, with Major Taylor and, and how folks are going to move in and around through Leesburg, Virginia, that's still there. And, you know, it, it, we have to imagine uh, of these folks moving in around that area in Virginia, people who have been operating in that area prior to us even being a country. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like these roads have been established. And, and just to add in, when you talk about like he's going to go into Maryland, remember we talked earlier yeah, you know, Maryland's a slave state, so you know you win hearts and minds, and you sway the state of, of Maryland. There's a possibility you could get some southern sympathizers, and you could beef up your numbers and start recruiting out of Maryland, which there are folks from Maryland that stand up and fight for the Confederacy. Uh, so it's a split state. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that yeah. that
0: makes the the hearts and minds even more important oh, because it's a semi-permissive environment. You might get actually end up turning. Yep. Uh, three, the Army will resume its march tomorrow, taking the Hagerstown Road. General Jackson's command will form the advance and, after passing Middletown with such portion as he may select, take the route towards Sharpsburg, cross the Potomac at the most convenient point, and by Friday morning take possession of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, capture such of them as may be at Martinsburg and intercept such as may attempt to escape from Harper's Ferry. So, again, I, I, what I like about that order is he's given a lot of leeway to Jackson, right? Hey, however you see fit, whatever portion you select, he's given a lot of leeway. The broad commander's intent is pretty clear, but he doesn't really care specifically how Jackson gets this part of it done.
1: Yeah, he, he he's gonna give, you know, uh, Robert E. Lee is, is, you know, he's got two core. You know, second core is Stonewall Jackson. You know, first core uh, we're talking about Longstreet. So he's going to be one of the players. that's going to be introduced. You know, coming in today. So he's got he fights two core, uh, and and he you know there is not a leash on Jackson, uh, and and he's just going to broad broad. Yeah, I'm I'm the same as you. The one it's like you know just select. He may select. You know what I mean? And take the route towards Sharpsburg and cross the
0: Potomac at the most convenient point. Yeah. And you compare that with the previous one where he's talking about major Taylor and he's like, Hey, the route between this and Culpeper courthouse, he's talking about a specific building. Yes. And meanwhile, he's telling Jackson just, Hey, you know, wherever you think it's cool, go ahead and get some, you know, wherever you want to cross it. Sounds good. So that, that massive amount of trust that they have built up allows for some real decentralized command. And you can see Lee, modulating the amount of direction he's giving based on the trust that he has in the people that he's working for. Again, this is another interesting thing about this order. Uh, Number four, General Longstreet's command will pursue the same road as far as Boonesboro where it will halt with reserve supply and baggage trains of the army. So there's Longstreet. We're talking about Longstreet right now? What do you you want to talk about Longstreet? We're we're talking about him. Should we talk about him?
1: Uh, Yeah. uh. You know, uh, James Longstreet uh, again. Uh, he's he's a West Point grad. Uh, went to West Point. Uh, he was born. He's a, born in Georgia, but raised in South Carolina.
0: Hey, just spoiler alert for for people like this guy that we're talking about now. You, you've probably heard of Jackson Stonewall Jackson. You definitely heard of General Lee. Longstreet. You if you if you're familiar with the Civil War, you heard of him. But if you're not that familiar with the Civil War, you might not have heard about him. But he's going to play all kinds of pivotal roles in all kinds of situations, and he's going to—he's got some—he's a massive part of this Civil War story. So just that's why J.D. is giving a little more detail on Longstreet. He's a very uh, prominent character in this story.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, and Longstreet is—he's a—he's a competent commander. Uh, you know what I mean for for working with uh, with Robert E. Lee. But if, you, if you're if you looking at, you know, of the two core commander of, of however Robert E. Lee came into to this, uh, that fell into his lap, it, it's almost like a yin and yang, uh, you know what I mean, of Jackson and Longstreet. Uh, they have, you know, they have different views on things. Um, and, and not anyone is is right or wrong or indifferent. Uh, they just, they go about things differently. And Lee knows this and, and uses it to the advantage, you know what I mean, of like, okay, well, why is he sending Jackson over towards Harper's Ferry and giving that leeway? Why is he keeping you know Longstreet close hold? Uh, the one thing about you, know, when you look at you know, we talked a little bit about the Army of Northern Virginia. When you've got two corps, Robert E. Lee does give like a lot of latitude to both commanders because he can't keep his army together. They're like two huge sharks that are literally eating the landscape as they move they're not like the union that'll just go into camp and just have all the provisions just come into camp the confederacy can't operate that way so he's got to keep them separate but then close enough to where if he wants a decisive move these guys are going to giddy up and they're going to get there quickly
0: Um, just to expand on what you just said because this is a huge point So we know, that the, we know that the union is industrialized and they're producing things and they can do things like run trains and logistics. So what you're saying is when the union army sets up camp somewhere, they can just sit there because they're going to have food and, and material sent to them. Through organized logistics trains based on really the logistics trains that are pre existing just from the nature of life in the North. The Confederates, they don't have those pre existing logistics trains. They don't have that focus either. So, what the Confederate Army does is it forages off the land and they go in with, I mean, these are 20, 30,000 people with how many horses, how many, if you got a, if you got a core, how many people are in Jackson's core? I mean, just off the top, I mean, just a rough estimate.
1: Yeah, he's got you know, 15,000, 20,000 folks. So
0: 15 to 20,000 people, how many horses do you think he has?
1: Uh, well, I mean, just to kind of, uh, to give a visual of because everybody's seen a cannon, you know what I mean? A piece of artillery. So if you look at one piece of artillery, there is six horses pulling one piece. Then behind that, you know what I mean? So each artillery piece, you've got the case on and then you've got an ammo chest. So there's another six horses and six horses. So if we do our you know quick math there, you know, I'm at 18 horses. Well, of course, the lieutenant gets a horse. Uh, you know what I mean? So now we're at 19 horses. You know, the army moves off of, you know what I mean, a, a horse and a mule. And, and when you look at the difference, just to elaborate a little bit more to kind of You know, in the industrial North, if you're just talking about like hooves of of animal, you know, it's going to move these armies. Uh, In the industrial North, they're like, "Well, how do you make a horse?" You know, you got to get a mommy horse and a daddy horse, and they got to really, really like each other. You know what I mean? And then, you know, a a few months later, you know what I mean? You're going to get this foal, and it's going to run around for a couple of years. The first couple of years of life, just running around trying to kill itself. Uh, You know what I mean? And then you got to train this thing. Uh, You know what I mean? So basically, at the onset of the beginning of the Civil War, if you look at it from 61, by the time they've got, like, horses, if you're going to try to make horses, because that's just what the North does. They just make stuff. Well, you can't make a horse. What they have on the ground at the start of the war is what they're going to finish with. So what do they do in the United States government? They contract, they send contractors and they just scour the landscape and they're gonna buy anything on four legs. And you know what I mean? And mules, they're gonna pay any amount for a mule, you know, because it it's better than a horse. You know, the difference between a horse and a mule, a mule asks ask you for his resume, you know what I mean? It's not just gonna just blindly follow you around. Like a mule is just smarter than a horse. In the agrarian South, if if you want to be like, if you want a horse, you gotta bring your horse. And then when you get there, the quartermaster's like, okay, yeah, hey Jocko, there's you and your horse. And he he gives you 50 bucks. Here's 50 bucks for your horse. You know what I mean? We just bought your horse, now go ride it around. Well then you go into the first battle and your horse gets shot and it's dead. Next thing you know, the quartermaster shows back up. Hey Jocko, man, where's my fifty bucks? What do you mean? <laughs> well, I paid you 50 bucks. What'd you do with my horse? Well, it got shot and killed. Well, you better get another horse and give me my fifty dollars back. So, you know what I mean? So, in the agrarian South, at the beginning, you know what I mean? They're on the cavalry side, of course, they're better capable. Uh, you know, because you're looking at the industrial North, you're looking at a lot of immigrants uh, that are coming in that just don't ride. Uh, so, when you're looking at the difference of these two armies, uh, it's just it's a it's leadership wise of how you're gonna how you're gonna have the ability to operate is gonna be very different uh, between the two. Um, when you look at at going back in with Longstreet, uh, Longstreet prior to the war again he was a West Point grad. He ended up uh, he's one of you know a lot of folks don't know but James Longstreet was in Ulysses S. Grant wedding. Uh, you know what I mean? They went to school together. I mean, they're friends. It doesn't matter. You know, when they went to school together, there wasn't like a, a north and a south. They were just West Point grads. Uh, and Longstreet was like he was like one of those guys that like everybody wanted to be around. You know what I mean? He was a really likable guy. Uh, and he ended up becoming really good. I mean, if you're in somebody's wedding, like, yeah. dude, you're tight. Yeah. You know, so you got Grant that's in there. So that's another uh, thing with with, uh, with Longstreet that a lot of folks don't know. But he was a very likable guy. He's a very likable commander. He was very competent at what he does. But this is the Army of Northern Virginia, and he's not a Virginian. You know, so, uh, you know, but still— you know, Robert E. Lee, you got Stonewall Jackson, and Robert E. Lee called him, Longstreet, his nickname, he was his old war horse. Like, he was just like, you know, he was very consistent, you know, in consistency's accuracy, and leadership, you know what I mean, with as far as like with James Longstreet, so— you know, when you're looking at those two commanders, so Longstreet and Lee, when you're talking about this command with four, so basically Lee's going to, you know, he is going to be in trace with Longstreet. Jackson is going to run independent operations towards Harper's Ferry, and, and that's where you come in with with uh, four. But when you look at it of the two commanders, yeah, they're yin and yang, but the end result, they both get the job done. They're both competent commanders.
0: Yeah, and then and then you as a leader, or Lee as a leader, he's got to look at and like you said, he utilizes them, kind of plays them to their strengths, right? I'm gonna take Longstreet, who's the, you know, the the more, for lack of a better word, the more squared away. Hey, I got this. I oh, you want me to set up camp? You want me to run the what does he have? The reserve, the supply, the baggage trains. Like that's that's Longstreet's personality. Meanwhile. Stonewall Jackson's like, hey, you're gonna go, <laughs> go get it, and so Lee understands their personalities, and just to wrap the thought uh, on the logistics. So since the South doesn't have great logistics, they and they've got all these horses and all these men, they're eat, they're foraging off the land. So and if you've ever been. Like a hunting uh, hunting elk. I go hunting elk, and sometimes a herd of elk, you, you'll stumble upon, upon a place where a herd of elk has gone through, and there's nothing there. Like every piece of grass, every leaf up until, you know, uh, however tall they can reach is just gone, barren. And I mean, a herd of elk is maybe, you know, 100, 100 elk, maybe, maybe not even that, and everything's gone on a path. So that's what I always think of when, we, when you and I talk about like this, this, this army is like a locust swarm oh. that moves through the land and eats everything. So there's, there's nothing left. And that, so, so two things are going on, you gotta keep that army moving. Like you can't just, they can't just sit there like the North can rest, basically. Hey, well, they're sending us water, they're sending us food, they're sending us you know, firewood. The, the, the South, they're burning everything to make fires, furniture, houses, whatever. It's just a different setup for each one of these two armies. So always keep that in mind. Now, look, there's advantages to where you can just forge and don't need a big supply chain. But this isn't one of those situations, right? There's an advantage when you say, oh, we can just live off the land. On an expedition, that's positive. Once you're in this type of situation though, it can turn into a negative very quickly. Um, Going back to this order 191. Number five, General McClaws with his own division and that of General R.H. Anderson will follow General Longstreet. On reaching Middletown, will take the route to Harper's Ferry and by Friday morning possess himself of the Maryland Heights and endeavor to capture the enemy at Harper's Ferry and vicinity. Pretty straightforward. Number six, General Walker, with his division, after accomplishing the object in which he is now engaged, will cross the Potomac at Cheeks Ford, ascend, it, ascend its right bank to Lovettsville, take possession of the Loudon Heights, if practicable, by Friday morning, Keys Ford on his left, and the road between the end of the mountain and the Potomac on his right. He will, as far as practicable, cooperate with general McClaws and Jackson and intercept the retreat of the army. Pretty specific orders. Once again, he likes that word practicable.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty popular. Well, <laughs> I see you smiling at me across the table because I, uh, yeah, everybody's always like if practicable, like what does that mean? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, it is a, you know, it's a, it's a pretty common term, but, You know, it's like, if you tell me that you're letting me make my own decisions of whether or not I I think I can, there's a
0: wide, wide, wide range of practicable. Yes. Uh, There's a wide range of what's practical. If I ask you to do something for me, if it's practicable, does that mean, you know, if I say, Hey, pick me up a steak from the store, if it's practicable, you're like, okay, well, you go in there and there's, uh, the steak is four bucks and you're like, Hey, cool. Get Jocko two steaks. You go in there and the stakes 30 bucks. You're like, that's not practicable. I didn't tell you what was practicable or not. So it's kind of your decision.
1: Yeah. I'm making it up call. to you.
0: Yeah. So there's some vagueness to that word.
1: But then, you know, everybody always kind of like, <clears throat> if I know that, like, okay, well, Jocko really wants that steak, And if I, I bring him like a piece of piece of fish like he's gonna be pissed <laughs> you know what I mean so it's like eh, maybe I better crack out that 40 bucks man yeah. go ahead and get the steak because I know that's what the boss
0: wants yeah and so I guess what we end up with here is if I ask Jackson for a steak I'm getting steak, steak. Like he doesn't care if he has to slap around the, the cashier <laughs> like we're getting steak right yeah, yeah. maybe if you ask someone else perhaps a uh, general walker and I don't I don't know too much about general walker maybe he's the kind of guy that you know he's yeah, he's going to make the call. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, if you ask McClellan for a steak, you better you better get the the white wine ready for for fish, right? Because you're not getting steak most likely. He's not going to bring you. It doesn't seem practicable to him, right? So it's a big word. Yeah, uh, going to cause some issues. Uh, seven, General D.H. Hill's division will form the rear guard of the army pursuing the road taken by the main body, the reserve, artillery, ordnance, and supply trains, etc., will proceed. will precede General Hill. And number eight, General Stewart will detach a squadron of cavalry to accompany the commands of General Longstreet, Jackson, and McClaws, and with the main body of the cavalry, will cover the route of the army, bringing up all stragglers that may be left behind. Number nine, the, generals, the commands of Generals Jackson, McClaws, and Walker, after accomplishing the objects for which they have been detached, will join the main body of the army at Boonesboro or Hagerstown. Number 10, each regiment on the march will habitually carry its axes in the regimental ordnance wagons for use of the men at their encampments to procure wood, etc. By command, General R.E. Lee. Okay, so we can see that's a thorough plan. I mean, we, we know what's happening. I mean, you could draw this out if you got out your little sand table. You threw out a map on the ground. You could you could plot out what's about to happen.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, with with this here, just like we kind of did earlier when I was showing you, like the Harper's Ferry, the Loudon Heights, you know, the Maryland Heights, where Jackson's going to be, and then when you look at like Hagerstown is in Maryland, so this is kind of like you know he's going to make his way north. And as we're moving up north, we might as well just swing by, man, and do a quick little raid on Harvest Ferry and pick up a little bit of extra, you know, logistical stuff for the, for the trip north. Because uh, it's, it's not just about, you know, the foraging for food. You know, you, you got these guys that are infantry guys. So, OK, let's say they're carrying 40 rounds on them. Well, that's going to go pretty quick in a gunfight. So they're going to need more ammo. Uh, so with that Harper's ferry, it's an arsenal, you know what I mean? A lot of ammo, a lot of weapons, that kind of thing. Uh, and it's also, uh, if you're looking at it of where Harper's ferry is, if you can control that, you got the Shenandoah river and you got the Potomac river, the confluences. I mean, if, if you command the Maryland Heights, like we were looking over top of there, like, like, wow. I mean, you, that's a commanding Loudon Heights in Virginia.
0: So, so Harper's ferry is sort of sitting on a peninsula in between the Shenandoah and the and the, and the um, Potomac Potomac River and it's where those two rivers converge and then turn into just the Potomac which takes you to the ocean.
1: Yep, yep, straight past DC, straight out to the Chesapeake. So this
0: is a very prominent point and would be great like you said to grab a hold of. So we hear a lot about Harper's Ferry.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot I mean it, you know, like we said, I mean the activity that's there coming off the Potomac uh, you know, what I mean, there's a, a, a CNO, there's a towpath, you know, what I mean, where they have uh, basically, you know, when you look at a lot of the old towns and a lot of the old rivers and that kind of thing of like, well, how do we move, you know, produce like upstream? So they're going to canal You know what I mean? A lot of these riverways and they're going to use locks. So if you're like a little mini Panama Canal, you know what I mean? Or all along these rivers, the way they can flood them and then flatboats. And then they've got like, uh, you know, harnesses with with mules or horses or kids uh, that are going to pull these up the towpath. Uh, and that's kind of like the way how they're kind of making their living there. So, yeah, this here of, of where Harper's Ferry, Virginia is at that time, has uh, been in existence forever. Uh, and it's if you control the Loudoun Heights and the Maryland Heights, you control those two rivers. And it also, if if Robert E. Lee controls that and looking at anybody coming up from the Loudoun Heights or up through Maryland, it's also securing his logistical lines of crossing over the Potomac and now into that western part of Maryland. Uh, so, you know, he's going to send the folks down there and uh, and just kind of pick that up along the way. And then he's going to, you know, they're just they're going to hang out in Hagerstown, Maryland. And then once Jackson's done, then they'll just make their way right back up there, link up in Hagerstown, and then we're going to start pushing north. So that's the whole plan. And I, I'm with you. I mean, I think it's very very well thought out plan of where, yeah, we could get a map out. We could look at this on here and we could explain of, of what everybody's part is in this special order 191.
0: So you got, when you when you think about the part and what each person's part is, well, we got to explain each person what, you know, the, the Jackson, McClaw, Walker, all these various people got to get their orders. So how are they getting their orders? Well, uh, General Lee writes these orders down. In, in a clear manner and then they some you know, probably some private that knows how to write <laughs> copies them And then they they bundle them up and send them with couriers out to deliver everyone. Hey, here's the orders This is what we're doing. That's how they're distributing. There's no there's no email. There's no it's not sending a PowerPoint brief That's how you're doing. It. It's a written copy of these orders. And so these couriers go out and lo and behold one of these couriers drops his plan. What happens with that?
1: Yeah, uh, to kind of give the the visual to the folks. Listen, when you look at a at, a, at like a, at a tent where the commander is going to be, so you got the commander, and then they got the flag. Uh, you know what I mean for that commander. So that that's how people can identify. Like you know, Jocko would have a flag, and I'm riding around and looking for Jocko. And up yep, there, there's Jocko's flag. I can go there. Now that doesn't mean Jocko is in there. Like he might be out doing like jocko stuff they're not just sitting in the tent waiting uh some are uh you know they don't leave their what we call commanders intents, uh not commander intent uh but you know so you got these you got these uh, an old man not really you know an older guy that's not really you know he can't hike and stuff like that but he's sitting in there at a table kind of like what we're at and he's got a stopwatch You know, what I mean, he's got a timepiece that's there and he's logging in these messages of when they're received and if there's messages going out. So he's recording all of this for the commander so that when Jocko comes back to his command post, you can go there straight to the table and put up. Yep, this came in, this went out and go through your messages and what time they were received so that you can prioritize which ones need to go out. You know what I mean? How long has this been sitting there? And then you've got like a, a bunch of teenagers with ponies sitting right outside. And these guys are the couriers. So if you could imagine, you know what I mean? Like, and we know how t- teenage boys are. We, we both have one. Uh, <laughs> uh, and you got these teenage boys on a pony. And they're like, hey, take this one. You're going to Jocko. Hey, I need you to take this one to Echo. This one's going over here. And they just give it. And these teenagers on ponies, they're out and they're off looking for that commander. Uh, and like, as you said, this, this one commander, you know what I mean, if, uh, is they, they take the special order 191 and it's actually rolled up with three cigars in the middle of special order 191. Uh, and you know the, the teenager just gets it. You know he's not old enough to smoke yet. Uh, you know what I mean? He gets it, puts it in his little satchel, uh, and and off and away he goes. Well, as he's going, you know it's it's the it's the typical teenager. He he left his satchel bag is not secure, uh, and as they're you know riding along, out falls special order one ninety one with three cigars wrapped around it. <laughs>
0: So a union guy picks it up. What's he excited about? <laughs> well, one, it's an enlisted
1: union guy. You know what I mean? Because it's just like, you know, they're out there walking along. If you're hiking, you're kind of looking at stuff and you're like, oh shit, man, look at that. You know what I mean? They see this thing wrapped, laying on the ground. He picks it up and he's like, dude, three cigars. You know what I mean? And like takes the the whatever the paper is, wrapped, throws it off to the side. Dude, I got three cigars. I mean, it's pretty bad, like tobacco is like a big deal. Uh, especially for northern folks, because where's all the tobacco? It's in Virginia. You know what I mean. So for these guys up north, they're not getting tobacco anymore. So this du- this dude stoked. Well, and one of the other guys is like, yeah, what's on that paper there, huh? Well, this is interesting. I think we need to like, we <laughs> better take, we push better, this up. We, the we chain better push to this up the chain. So let's just act like there was like one cigar, <laughs> and we keep the two. Send up the and so it, that special order one ninety one it makes its way to the commander,
0: General McClellan. So McClellan gets the entire battle plan from General Lee, line by line. He knows what's gonna happen. And he, speaking of stoked, he gets pretty stoked at this. I'm gonna pull a little excerpt here from the book, Lincoln's Lieutenants. Here's what what this book says about it. The lost order, that's order 191, as it came to be known, was an intelligence coup unrivaled in the war that McClellan fully realized what fortune had awarded him is evident in the exuberant telegram he sent at noon that day to the president. Quote, I think Lee has made a gross mistake if the plans of the rebels remain unchanged. I have all the plans of the rebels and will catch them up in their own trap if my men are equal to the emergency. He closed with a a pledge We'll send you trophies. <laughs> <laughs> so McClellan's thinks he's got this, he's he's thinks he's good to go. Um but McClellan's a weird guy, man. Yeah. He's a weird guy. And it seems, am I interpreting this right from what I understand of the story? It sounds like he's a guy that he doesn't tell his subordinates that he knows what the enemy is gonna do. Almost as if he wants everyone to think that he's just a brilliant commander. It's like if you, you know, had the opposing teams, you know, in football, you had their playbook, and so you started set. You didn't tell your team. You didn't say, "Hey, I have their playbook. That's why we're gonna do this." Instead, you just say, "Hey, over here, you know, set up on this side, and when they call this, do this." And now you look. I mean, you look like a a brilliant tactician and strategist because they just think you're smart. Was he trying to pull that off? I mean, was that was that what happened?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, from the from the readings that I get, that's exactly. You know, he gets this order and he's reading it over, and it's it's almost like you know, like I, I think in the book he talks about, like he he alludes to like Franklin like a little bit, It doesn't tell him he's got the order, but it's just kind of like giving him a little. You know, a, a little uh, you know, what I mean, teasing him a bit about like you know, what I mean, hey, I, 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 this is going to be good, man. Like I, I've got a plan for this, and and it, it's all going to be me. I mean, it's like you know, like like you said, like we're we're strolling through the locker room and we find the other team's playbook, and I'm the head coach, and you know, like the the water boy brings me this book of, like, hey, coach, like, look what I found. You know what I mean? And it's Bobby Boucher, and he gives me the book, and he's not really, you know, smart of a guy. And then I'm the head coach, and I don't tell my offensive and defensive coordinator that, dude, I got the whole game plan. Like, but And then you're looking at me because I'm like – I am I start to call play. You're like, hey, Jocko, I'm I'm going to call the plays on this one. You know what I mean? Like, well, you're like, what do you mean you call? It? I'm offensive coordinator. You always look – yeah, you know what, man, I, I've got a good feeling about this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Let's, let's 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 do the old number four. You know what I mean? And you're like, and then it like it the old number four just like miraculous like, like, oh, oh, it's just crushing them, and you're all looking at me like, JD man is like on his game today. And, but you know what I mean? But it, like, why wouldn't I sit down and check? Who cares if the team doesn't know? But my offense, my subordinate commanders, like my offensive coordinator, my defensive coordinator, special teams, like why am I not calling in all my assistant coaches and be like, dude, look what I got, you know, because they can then read it and interpret it as well. Uh, but so yeah, I mean that's that's McClellan wants to make it look like he's just a freaking
0: genius, and it's just going to elevate his ego even more. So he starts. Doing what you said. He's like, hey, we're gonna do the old number four. And and by the way, McClellan up to this point, as we know, is like a is like a habitual slow roller. He's he's default passive, right? <laughs> <laughs> he's and and now all of a sudden he starts moving troops aggressively. He starts making making movements. And Lee starts to execute the plan, but but McClellan uh, but sorry, Lee notices that McClellan is doing things, making moves that are out of character. I think Lee uses the words like these are out of, McClellan's doing things that are out of character, which is really absolutely incredible to have that much perception of what's happening on the battlefield that your opposing general, you, you realize that he's doing things that are out of character. That's a pretty that's pretty uh impressive to be able to sense that
1: yeah i would uh and and i think that's what makes uh the civil war um so much more intriguing is because like all these guys uh, you know they, they they fought together i mean so it would almost be as if like you know i mean if we took like you and leif you know what i mean yeah, and yeah. He, you would be like man leif's a little bit out of character yeah. but you know his yeah. character like so well that you're like he knows
0: something yeah Oh, like leif is staying in position something's weird yeah (laughs) (laughs) because normally leif is trying to go right so i'm like oh there's something going on he's got some kind of a trap set yeah so these guys know each other to the point where they're where they're suspect when you're doing something that's not expected and so lee senses that and changes up his plan
1: yeah so he, he, you know, because you got to get up and over like uh, the the prominent terrain feature uh, for folks that have ever been in that region of uh, of western Maryland. You got to get over what's called South Mountain. I mean, it's a large mountain range uh, running in of South Mountain. Not if you're like a West Coast guy, of course. You know, <clears throat> they're, 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 it's like a hill uh, up there. But South Mountain in Maryland, it's pretty prominent. Uh, and there's only a couple of places, you know, roads back then where you can kind of cross over. Uh, so you got to get up and over uh south Mountain um, and again his execution uh he's not like i mean it just it amazes me that he's got this plan but because he keeps it close hold so as he's sitting there and you know you know study long study wrong uh, you know what I mean kind of an of an attitude so he's get this plan and he at first he gets like super excited but then you know what I mean he's he starts thinking about it like This is kind of odd. Why would cigars rolled up, dropped conveniently in the road, picked up by a union guy? I think they might have planted this. Uh, You you know what I mean? So now he's second-guessing himself of the, you know, initially, I'm stoked. Then it starts coming into, I think they planted this here. So you know what I mean now so that's causing him again. So instead of like being like bam, I'm on it now he starts second guessing his own this own order 191. Is it legit? Like is this legit did they put this down here to lure me in? Uh, and so he second guesses up. so now he's gonna slow roll and because of, of of his actions, it's giving time for Robert E. Lee, to be able to start sending messages, because, you know, I mean, we read the one order, 191, like Jackson and these guys are gone. They're over at the Loudoun Heights. They're up the Maryland Heights. They're hitting Harper's Ferry. Uh, you know, if you look at Hagerstown, I mean, uh, of even of Sharpsburg, Maryland, it's over 14 miles away. Now, I know like a lot, of it's like, you know, in today, 2022, 14 miles is not a lot. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You know, carrying all your stuff on your back, you know what I mean? And moving 14 miles and you're going to try to get like 15,000 people to move, you know, 15 miles. That's a lot, especially as you're already moving down and you're, you're taking control. Because there's st- the, the beginning of the order, Jackson and them are, are taking Har- Harper's Ferry. You know what I mean? They're, they're becoming successful. You know what I mean? So they're, they're, you know, they surrender Harper's Ferry. Jackson's got it. And then the next thing you know, like Robert E. Lee is sensing of like, dude, Little Mac is like, he's out of character. Something's up. And he immediately sends a note to Jackson. Like, hey, dude, you know what I mean? Finish up what you got going on down there, man. I need you to, you need to make your way up here to Shepherdstown. Uh, Because now Robert E. Lee is—he's—he's got Longstreet. He's got one of his core, but just like we kind of talked a little bit earlier, you know what I mean? He needs to get his armies together. I mean, I think what were the numbers on here? It's like eighty-five thousand versus forty thousand. So if you you split the forty thousand in half, you're kind of sitting up there with twenty thousand. Those aren't good odds, uh, you know what I mean? And you're doing an away game. You know what I mean? You're in Maryland. You know what I mean? This is an away game. You know what I mean? You don't have the support that you would be. And you've got the Potomac River and your back's up against it. And that's not an easy river to be able to get across if you're going to try to move 20,000 people. You know what I mean? And you're just going to ford the river with all that stuff. Uh, You know what I mean? Because you don't want to just leave your stuff. Um, So there's a lot of decision making. So Robert E. Lee's going to sense this, which I think is just incredible. Uh but um and then he's gonna send a note down to down to Jackson. And so they do secure Harper's Ferry. Uh, but because of McClellan's lack of sense of urgency to get stuff done, he's gonna squander like any hopes of getting I mean, if if he could have got Longstreet without Jackson being there, mm-hmm. you know, like if you look at that order, Jackson isn't at the Maryland Heights, he's in Virginia. You know what I mean? So for him to be able – if now you've got him segregated to where you can hit Longstreet all by himself with your entire so army. So it's 80 against 20. Yeah. I mean, you're going to roll him like a wet napkin. And you're going to push him, and you could destroy that core. You know what I mean? And yeah, then and, you and then you got – Then you got Jackson.
0: Also a single core against your entire army. Yeah.
1: And then you could cross over into Virginia – and you could get Jackson is on a peninsula. He's got some of his guys are over on the Maryland Heights. You know what I mean? So now you could pursue one core of Jackson. Uh, I mean, just, you know, but again, McClellan, uh, you know, the exaggeration of the numbers, how many people are actually out there, false reporting to Lincoln and, and the, uh, Stanton, Secretary of War and these guys. I mean, like he just literally just doesn't take action, so he's got this great piece of intelligence that's given to him, and he doesn't
0: use it. It's just crazy. Yeah, no, it's it is crazy. Uh, so what you end up with for the battle scene here is you end up with Longstreet and Jackson because Jackson does make it up. Now they're, they're they sort of form their whole line. The, ar- the whole army is arrayed at an angle online northeast of Sharpsburg. So you got 45,000 of them. And then McClellan, because he didn't take action, because he kind of stayed put, they end up aligned with their 85,000 troops. McClellan is east of the Antietam River in the pry house, whereas the troops are west of the Antietam River for the most part, is that correct?
1: The the Confederates, yep. Yeah, Confederates are on the west side, right. uh, with Long Street.
0: But aren't aren't a lot of the Union troops on the west side of the of the creek of Antietam Creek? Not
1: yet. Okay. They're they're gonna make the approach coming from east to west. So first they got to get up and over South Mountain, and then they're gonna come down into the valley of where like you're coming into Sharpsburg. So if you could imagine, that you got Antietam Creek, which then spills into the Potomac River, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a uh, I mean, I don't know, like Antietam Creek. I mean, uh, it's it's probably uh, twenty feet wide, uh, maybe you know three feet deep. You know what I mean? Some mm-hmm. spots deeper than others. I mean, it's not, uh, but it's still a it's a, a natural obstacle uh, to kind of to kind of get through. And so first. You know, they got to get up and over South Mountain. And of course, Robert E. Lee, there's going to be the battle up there of trying to get through these passes to, to get over. And, and Robert E. Lee is just, he just needs to slow him down. He needs to give time for Jackson. He needs to get his army back up there. Uh, so, Jackson, uh, just like you had said, just, uh, just uh, a little bit northeast of Sharpsburg, there's a little church that the church still stands to this day. Uh, It's up there uh, at at Sharpsburg at Antietam at the battlefield that's there. Uh, It's the Dunkard Church. It's a little one story white church that sets off the road. I mean, uh, Antietam battlefield is a beautiful, beautiful setting. Farmland, cornfields, uh, just a a beautiful part of America. Uh, And the pry house which you're talking about ends up becoming uh mcclellan's headquarters is on the east side of antietam creek and it's it's like one of the nicest houses in the area you know what i mean like when you roll up to the pry house you're kind of like well no shit mcclellan came here (laughs) you know what i mean like he's not going to go to the double wide down the road he's taking the pry house and that's where he's going to set up shop uh and at, at this time, you know, you got Longstreet and, and, and Lee are, are over there, you know, over by the Dunker Church. Uh, and you've, if you could imagine these, uh, you know, Maryland rolling hills of farmland with little pockets of, of wooded area. Uh, you know, so, you know, through there, you'll hear through the books of like the East Woods, the North Woods, the cornfield, the sunken road. Uh, it's just like little pockets of farms that are out there uh, right outside of Sharpsburg. And uh, and so he sends the note and Jackson, you know, being Jackson, as soon as he gets that that note from Lee of like, hey, dude. Hey, Diddle Diddle, get your ass up here! So Jackson immediately turns over command to a subordinate to finish up operations going on there at Harper's Ferry, and Jackson gets on Little Sorrel. It's his horse. It's his favorite horse. He's got a couple of horses, but Little Sorrel's like his favorite one. Uh, just yeah, you know, Little Sorrel used to be fully stuffed in the basement of VMI. Like you could go there and pet Little Sorrel. Where is it now? I, I don't know if they got rid of little sorrel uh, like when i was a kid you could pet the horse but now the last time i saw little sorrel he was behind plexiglass because you could imagine all the kids petting it it kind of looked like a like one of those um, <laughs> like those bald cats <laughs> but it was like a big bald cat so he gets on little sorrel and makes his way up to uh, uh up to sharpsburg and when just to, to kind of you know, give the idea of Stonewall Jackson and the Army of Northern Virginia. So you got all these privates that are with you know First Corps and they work for Longstreet. Great guy. But these privates that are out there on this, you know, this this formidable line of defensive posture that you were kind of talking about, some of the privates like look down and over and they see this dude coming up on a horse. And one of the private, they're like, dude, it's Jackson. And they're hey and, and so they turn and they yell down the line, hey man, everything's good. Jackson's here. <laughs> well, it's just Jackson. He doesn't have any infantry with him. But just the morale of not even his own core is lifted just because Jackson's there. I mean, that's that's the kind of uh, if you're looking at, at like a a, a leader, uh, in an organization, you know, you probably, you know, through your time, you know, just like with me in the Marine Corps, there's always like that one dude that shows up and like everybody just kind of <laughs> gets excited because, you know, uh, you know, he's here. Yeah. Uh, that, that's what Jackson uh, brings to. The, and of course, as soon as they get there, you know, it's it's Lee and Longstreet and they're going to they're going to they're gonna have a discussion. H- how's this going to roll? Uh, because if you look at Antietam Creek, uh, you know what I mean? Antietam Creek, there's there's three bridges. You know what I mean? Because like I said, I mean, it's not a, it's not a big creek, but you're going to have to use bridging. You're going to have to find a ford. Like, again, we're talking about moving artillery, logistics, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Infantry wade right across it. But when they run out of ammo, you know what I mean? They're going to need a logistical train. So, you know. You, you got so you've got the the lower bridge, a middle bridge, and an upper bridge, and it's going from you know the lower bridge is down closer towards the Potomac River, you know towards the south. The middle bridge uh, is just right down from the Pry House. It's an easy straight across. The, it's the it's the shortest distance between the two armies is the middle bridge, and then you've got an upper bridge uh, that's going to have to take you up and around. It's a little bit farther of a movement to get around, but you're gonna end up coming out on the north end of the battlefield. You're going to be at the north moving south. So that's kind of what uh, McClellan is Is the predicament that he's in is okay well which bridge am I going to use and then what's my battle? How am I going to you know, fight this battle? Uh, and again it, it's all McClellan and once he makes camp at the Pry House he stays at the Pry House.
0: And if the Pry House was in some you know, dominant terrain feature on top of a hill or something with a great view of the battlefield—that might be a good thing. But but that's not the scenario, right? Pry house is like limited visibility.
1: Yeah, because you know, you, you uh, it, it, if you look at the battlefield as a whole, and it's not a large battlefield. I mean, like a lot of people are thinking, like this battlefield is just is huge. Uh, you know, like when we go to Gettysburg, I mean, you know, in the morning when I, I, mean, I take folks around, we can almost run the whole battlefield. It's seven miles around the whole thing. Antietam is a little bit smaller than, than even at Gettysburg, if you're putting it into perspective. Uh, and he can maybe see one third
0: of the battlefield from the pry house. Jackson's troops do Jacks, When do Jackson's troops get up there? Do they get up there? Oh, yeah. They, so they, they get up there. Yep,
1: they get up there.
0: And now they're aligned. And now the, you got these two armies on opposite sides of the creek, three bridges, and we're about to go to battle. i um, going to go to Elijah Hunt Rhodes' book, All for the Union, once again, what he says about this. We passed through the town and formed in line just beyond. Here I was placed in charge of a plantation with a guard. One of the ladies became insane from fear and excitement. We remained here two days, then went on to Brownsville where our regiment was sent into the mountains after some rebel cavalry, but we did not find them. The mountainside was steep and we found the climbing hard work. The next morning, the 17th, we saw the battle of Antinum fought almost at our feet. We could see the long lines of battle, both union and rebel. And hear the roar as it came from the field the battle the rebel trains of wagons were moving all day toward the river at dark we marched down the mountain and started for the battlefield where we arrived and went into camp the next morning we were put in the front lines I have never in my soldier life seen such a sight the dead and wounded covered the ground In one spot, a rebel officer and 20 men lay near a wreck of a battery. It is said Battery A, 1st Rhode Island Artillery, did this work. The rebel sharpshooters and skirmishers were still at work, and the bullets whizzed by merrily. At noon, the rebels asked and received permission to bury their dead, and the firing ceased for a while but commenced again in the afternoon. The 2nd Rhode Island was ordered forward, and we charged up a hill, and driving the enemy away took possession here we lay all night with the bullets flying over us most of the time the next morning the enemy shelled our regiment but it was their last shots for as we moved forward they retired and we entered sharpsburg the town is all battered to pieces and is not worth much So, is that the first time we've read from from All for the Union? I think it is. Uh, yeah. Elijah Hunt Rhodes. This guy started off as a private in his regiment and ended up the commander of his regiment. <laughs> and just an incredible book. You got to get it. You know, it's it's so great to have first person accounts of these things. So, All for the Union by Elijah Hunt Rhodes, the Civil War diary and letters of Elijah Hunt Rhodes. Uh, you can see that this this type of combat. You know when you get entire entire groups just wiped out by cannon fire, this is a nightmare. Um, the middle bridge. so what is what is what is it that he decides to do? What is it that um McClellan decides to do? he's got he ends up not using the middle bridge.
1: Yeah, he's gonna. Uh, yeah, to to give it you know of a, a, a broad brush uh, for folks when you know if you're looking at the battle, we we explain that the three bridges you got the Antietam Creek, uh, so and you know when you look back at even uh, with McClellan of how he fought at the Peninsula, you know we talk piecemealing, uh, you know what I mean, not you know congregation. So you're going up against it and. and uh, yeah, you know, we already talked about the the numbers. Uh, you know, there, he definitely has a superior advantage uh, of numbers over the Army of Northern Virginia, uh, and he's still going to keep some of his guys back in reserve. So, you know, for the overarching schemes, he's got uh, he's got Hooker and Mansfield. Uh, you know what I mean? Both of them. Uh, Hooker actually does really well uh, at at this Battle of Antietam. Mansfield, you know, spoiler alert, he gets killed. Uh, but there, he's going to send those two folks up to the upper bridge. They're going to they're going to leave and they're going to go all the way out and around. And it's not uh, too far. It might be like maybe I mean I've walked it numerous times. Uh, it's you know, it's it's less than 7 miles. You know what I mean? But you're going to go out through the countryside. Uh, so and the and the the uh, the ability of the confederate to have eyes on you, they're not going to have eyes on you. Like you are far enough away to where you've got landmass and terrain cover to, to hide your movement uh, coming around. So he's going to send Hooker and Mansfield out and around. They're going to end up over in the, the North Woods uh, area uh, of the battle. So they're going to be on the north end of the battlefield, coming from north down to south. Uh, if you're looking at, at how they're going to see the Confederacy, uh, on the extreme left uh, of the Confederacy lines is going to be Jackson. And then on the right, because when Jackson gets there, he just ties in to Longstreet's left flank. And, and they're going to run across an expansion of, like I, I told you, I mean, these are these are cornfields. It's a farmland. Uh, and when you, I mean, it's from the Dunker Church, uh, you know, it, it just being there is just unimaginable because they're going to come out of the wood line and then you're in like, you're in like cornfields. But it's those rolling hills to where, you know what I mean? Like nobody's shooting at you, not necessarily yet, but when, when you're in range, you're behind folks that are, again, you know what I mean, at, at, a, at, a, at an advantage uh, to where you're moving, they're not stationary, and you got, you're got you coming in for movers, uh, and they are going to lay the wood uh, to Hooker and Mansfield as they, they're making their approach uh, towards Dunker Church. Uh, at the lower bridge, McClellan thinks that, okay, I'm going to send these folks around. They're going to hit them from the north, pushing north to south. But I want to be able to not allow the Army of Northern Virginia to escape. So I'm going to take Burnside. uh, You know what I mean? Another one of his commanders. And he's going to send Burnside down to the lower bridge. Uh, And from the lower bridge from Dunker Church, like if we were standing there, you can't see where the lower bridge is. Uh, But, the lower bridge down there of what is now named Burnside Bridge, which is probably not a good thing to get that bridge named after you because of what Burnside did at that bridge. Uh, the terrain that's there—it's almost as if you could—you come across from the south heading north, and you you drop down into where you're onto the creek, and then the bluffs just go straight up uh, over top. Of the, so it it's going to be difficult to gain access to to that bridge of the lower bridge. And of course, the Confederates have to have eyes on uh, those bridges. So basically, Robert E. Lee, when you're looking at like the lower bridge to keep eyes on, because he can't just not have anybody down there. He's going to use it as more like kind of like an economy of force. Uh, He knows that the focus of main effort, we got to deal with this threat coming from the north. We got to deal with Hooker. We got to deal with Mansfield. But because of the terrain advantage of the Confederate side they can use an economy of force that's up there and just with marksmen and rifles. And they're like, are these guys really going to try to come across this bridge?
0: So the Burnside Bridge, just to, just to reiterate, you got this bridge coming across. And it basically, as soon as you get across the bridge to the western side where the Confederates are, there's a steep
1: incline. Oh, it's steep.
0: And so now you're going up against the terrain You've got channelized area coming across the bridge and then when you get across, you're not safe because now you got to get uphill and you've got plunging fire from Confederate marksmen and Confederate riflemen. So that's what that's what Burnste- Burnside-, Burnside is up against. So how does that play out?
1: Yeah, so you know it, to try to visualize, so there's like a there's a little ridge line that's just over where Burnside kind of sets it and they're in cover. Uh, And then when you drop down off of this hill to start heading to the bridge, like it's it's like a it's almost like if I was going to you're running across the football field before you even get to the bridge, flat, open, no trees. Uh, there is still to this day, there's one tree that is it's called a, it's a witness tree that's right there next to. So it's called a witness tree because it was there during the battle. It was photographed at the battle. And now it's it was a sapling. Now it's a it's a large, massive tree. Uh, so there's not any cover to get to this bridge. So you got these folks that are just like literally you're you're coming down from cover and you're completely exposed. And it's like running across the football field. It's that flat a football field just to, and like you were talking about, so it's going to channelize them to come to this bridge. So the Confederates are up at the high ground, you know what I mean? And and they're watching, so you're within range as soon as you drop down onto that football field. And then these guys are just going to start laying the wood because they know where you're going. So it's not like they got to worry about you zigging and zagging and are they going to run that way. They're all running for the bridge. So these guys are just focusing. And, you know, when you look at like uh, like a lot of the folks, like even though the weapon system, you know, some of they got they have rifled muskets at this time. Uh, and even the guys with some of the smooths board. When you look at the, the ability of the marksman, uh, especially in the Army of Northern Virginia back there, like back then, like everybody in the South had a gun. And as soon as you were raised as a kid, you used that gun because they all hunt. Well, you know, so it wasn't like nowadays, your dad didn't give you like, "Hey, here's a box of 20." You know what I mean? Go out there and, and you know, get us a deer. Like, you get one round and <laughs> are we going to eat tonight? You know what I mean? And you know, so there's a different the ability of the marksmen back then are in in my opinion, they're better than what we are today. Uh just because that that's it's a way of life uh for the for the Confederacy and the union has some really good shooters as well. You know, the famed Berdan sharp sharpshooters, huge. You know, you got boys from Maine, uh, you know what I mean? New Hampshire area up there. Like, these guys, they can bring the wood. Everybody thinks, oh, it's a bunch of New Yorkers from the city. You know what I mean? No, it's not. You know what I mean? Wisconsin, yeah, those are farm boys. They know how to shoot. Uh, so, you know, but if you've got that kind of advantage of where you're in a stable, prone position, and you got guys running and you know exactly where they're going to come to, to that bridge. And, and the problem of, of you know, it, it's, it's like Burnside is looking through life through a straw. You know what I mean? Like when you talk about detach, like he doesn't, he doesn't detach. Because like literally like maybe less than a half of a mile from that bridge, there's another Ford. Like you don't have to use the bridge, brother. There's a Ford right down from the bridge, but he's looking through life through a straw and he just keeps sending folks to the bridge. And if you could imagine, yeah, uh, after a while, is Burnside going to get folks to the bridge and take them up? Of course he is, because it's just a matter of mass of numbers, but the loss of life that they're going to take to gain that bridge and the amount of time. You know what I mean, and that's all the economy force is. Because Robert E. Lee's got to deal with Hooker and Mansfield at the north. That's the big threat, and then he's gonna you know have some you know some folks down there at the lower bridge and use them as an economy of force. Once he's dealing with Mansfield and Hooker, then he can detach and send folks down there to support the lower bridge. So that's basically what Robert E. Lee's doing. Uh, and he's been able to hold his own, and and again, like this wasn't his plan. Like he's still a little baffled of like what are we doing in Sharpsburg, and why are we at battle? And because he didn't know that the other coach found his playbook. You know what I mean? He just he just knows that this this isn't working out well, and whatever McClellan is up to, man, I I just need to I need to get us out of this predicament. You know what I mean?
0: General Lee always liked to pick where he fought. Always. And he didn't do that here. No. Uh, eventually, the the Confederate forces start to backpedal, right? Yep. Um, which you would think that would translate to a victory. Like, hey, we, we got him to backpedal. That's a victory. But because of this persistent effort I mean for instance for for Burnside trying to get across that bridge the amount of life that they lost It's like you couldn't even raise your hand and say we won cuz It's a disaster Yeah Um, And this ends up the bloodiest single day in American history from the Union forces 2100 killed nine thousand five hundred and fifty wounded 750 missing or captured. And from the Confederates, 1,550 killed. 7,750 wounded, 1,020 captured or missing. Those, I mean, I mean, that is shocking. Those are shocking numbers. And all of that is for what is Pretty much considered a draw. No progress was made in the war. No progress, just carnage. And that carnage would continue. And we will continue on the next Civil War excursion. So thanks for listening. If you want to support, go to jockostore.com, jockofuel.com, originusa.com, echelonfront.com, And theomna.com. And until next time, this is JD and Jocko out.